Yesterday, I visited in uh, downtown Oakland during the um, Occupy movement. And I was uh, reflecting on that quite a bit. It was very interesting to be there. I had been there in the fall um, as well, and particularly the day of what was called the general strike, which was quite quite a powerful, beautiful experience for me. It was uh, one in which it was uh, quite festive, celebratory. The, there was uh, incredible mixing of people of different ages, different ethnicities. That was quite, quite beautiful, just mixing on the street thousands of people then. And um, last night was a little different. I was there in the um, evening. and. There were a lot of uh, very interested people, I would say mostly uh, younger people, probably mostly under, under 40. And there were also were um, quite a number of people with uh, black clothes, and many of them had masks on, um, you know, just wandering around during the um, late afternoon, uh, early evening, um, whom I think later were involved with vandalism and so forth. And um, so I, w I was just reflecting on that some, and I wanted to explore some the connection of our practice with responding to the needs of the world, and to explore that theme. Because I was reflecting on, you know, there, there, there are a lot of uh, beautiful aspects of this uh, movement. There are a lot of problematic aspects, I think, as well. You know, I think the, you know, personally, I think that the lack of a clarity about nonviolence is strategically unwise. <coughs> uh, that's my own, my own view on that, that, uh, you know, it, it dilutes the message and uh, the headlines become mostly about the actions of about a few percent of the people who are, seem to be interested in um, confrontation with the police and in um, causing damage, even, even though I know it's uh, focused in certain ways, sometimes it's not. In any case, so I think there, there, are definitely, there are definitely a number of issues, and you know, I think you know, the, the spirit of metta clearly includes the 1%, <laughs> as well as the 99%, so, or the spirit of our practice. You know, so I think there, there, there are certainly issues, but there's also appointing, you know, there's fresh energy to really respond to the problems of the world. And I think we know that there are all sorts of issues with our world that are there, you know, from the uh, economic inequality and the way that the society is uh, so much structured by, by greed and by self-centeredness, um, which is not consonant with the ethical values that we follow. You know, we, we follow, we take ethical precepts to uh, work through greed. And I was remembering a um, newspaper clipping that I, I found uh, during one, I think it was in the fall, during a really down, a bad downward stock movement. And there was a quote by a trader on the floor who said, all of our work here is dominated by either greed or fear. <laughs> we are in a fear cycle now, <laughs> you know? So uh, that's quite a statement, right? And I think we, we know that we have, we have dominant institutions that are structured by, by greed uh, by and by precisely the kinds of um, energies which we try to work through in our practice. We, you know, for shorthand, we speak of greed, hatred, and delusion. You know, and we know that we have institutions that are uh, dominated. Maybe not the total thing going on, but we know that our economic institutions are structured to a large extent by greed. You know, again, not totally, but to a significant extent. You know, and we know that there's uh, quite a lot of delusion in the media, you know, and, and maybe in aspects of the educational system. You know, and we know that we have uh, other institutions which, um, you know, um, such as the military, which in significant part carry out violence. 
and are structured by um, structured by uh, large amounts of violence and you know perhaps in the interest of greed. You know, hard. You know, have to have to. Um, uh, that seems to be what, from what I've read, that seems to be largely the case. There was a very powerful quotation I remember from uh, one of the great American diplomats from about 50 years ago, where he he spoke very candidly and said, um, "We have something like uh, five, per ten, five or ten percent of the population, and we control 50 percent of the world's resources." And we want to keep it that way, <laughs> right? And the other, the rest of the world will probably resent that, but uh, we want to keep things going. So that's, you know, many of the. So many, we, know, we I think we know intuitively that there are these um, ways that things are set up that probably most or uh, many of us are not very comfortable with. We don't always know what to do. Or how to respond, you know, and we know there, there are other kinds of issues. Of course, the ecological issues are um, becoming quite severe, you know. And we, we, I think, uh, those of good heart somehow uh, sense that there are aspects of our systems which are, uh, which are destructive, you know, and which are not going in good directions. And and how to how to respond? This is what the uh, teacher Thich Nhat Hanh said. If we continue abusing the earth this way, there is no doubt that our civilization will be destroyed. This turnaround takes enlightenment, awakening. The Buddha attained individual awakening. Now we need a collective enlightenment to stop this course of destruction. Civilization is going to end if we continue to drown in the competition for power, fame, sex, and profit. So I think we, we know this and how to how to uh, how to want, how to respond and how and what is what does this have to do with our this inner practice that we do you know this practice that calls us here which we know is about transforming greed hatred and delusion you know and and how to um, how to understand the situation and how and I I want to understand as it were, the best of the Occupy movement, as in some way people responding and saying, this is not okay, we want to do something. There's often confusion about what to do. And, but there, there's some energy, there's some energy roused. You know? and, and I think at, at root, uh, what animates people is, is essentially a spiritual vision, I would say. It's a vision that probably many of us hold of a society based on care, love and wisdom. Sort of as simple as that. What that would look like, you know, would have to be worked up. I think many of us are motivated by that. And we get, I think, somewhat, um, sometimes somewhat cynical, sometimes somewhat uh, just uh, um, resigned almost to things being as they are. And we, and, and I think, and yet I think in all of us there's this deep uh, voice when we when we listen that wants to um, that wants to respond. I know that I've been surprised sometimes when my mind has been most quiet when I'm involved in meditation. Sometimes I get a sense, oh, another world is possible. I'm you know it's almost like I need to cut through all those layers and layers that whatever we call it of resignation or of thinking that things. Are, can't be changed. It's not very conscious, but we have that. And I know in other work that's, that's also um, been the case, work that I've done with Joanna Macy. Some of you know her work. Her work is really designed to invite us to go beneath those layers where we are, in, in, in a sense, often deadened and find it hard to respond. And it's, been, it's been interesting for me to have a sense that when my mind is really open and clear, I find creativity and say, oh, it could be different. Why not? Right? And, so, and I'm sure we've all had moments like that. You know, and maybe some of us live there a lot, which is, which is wonderful. You know, and we've probably been quite inspired by some other movements. Maybe how many of you watched with a lot of interest what was happening in Egypt 
It was very, very beautiful, uh, very beautiful movements in many ways. And um, this is from uh, Michael Lerner, who is the editor of Takoon, who who's really has some very intelligent writing on all this. He says, most people desire a world in which love and caring predominate over money and power. It is the deprivation of these spiritual needs that is a central contradiction of our society. He says that capitalist society cannot fulfill these spiritual needs for this hunger for meaning. For many of the people in the middle and upper middle classes of society, not yet the 1%, which I think the economists say 1% is is income of $350,000 or more. So, uh, it, for those who are, who are middle or upper middle class, it is the spiritual crisis that is precisely what unites their fate with that of many poorer people who suffer both economically and from the spiritual hollowness and love deprivation inherent in our society. You know, or maybe we should, you know, it's not everything, but there are strong forces which make that harder. And so, for me, there's a very um, beautiful image uh, and, and inspiration of connecting our inner work with responding in our own ways to the needs of the world and finding what that, finding what that vocation is, finding um, how we respond. But I, I think probably for many of us, we long to make that connection between this beautiful inner work and how we respond outwardly and have, uh, in the long run, our lives be uh, really dedicated to awakening, as it were, both inner and outer, both in our own consciousness and in our relations with others and in our work in the world, whatever that is. And this doesn't at all mean that we all, as it were, become really, really activists right there on the front lines. You know, one thing that I've learned from Joanna Macy is a very, very helpful model of how to connect inner and outer. And particularly, she says that there, that she talks about the, uh, the great turning uh, towards a more caring society. And she says that it really, there are three dimensions of that change. One is to stop further damage from happening. You know, she calls it holding actions to prevent further damage, whether damage to people, to the ecosystem, and so forth. And that is often the uh, province of people who call themselves activists. You know, it's stopping negative things from happening. But she says that vast amount of energy has to go into two other areas. The second is really developing alternative institutions maybe alternative ways of doing things, which many of you are doing, developing alternative ways of um, health care, education, psychotherapy, uh, parenting, um, community life, and so forth. Um, all of the areas that our work is involved with really uh, are calling out to be done in a way which is slightly different maybe which brings in your spiritual practice into your, into your work. And, she, and it's very similar to what uh, Gandhi called the constructive program. Gandhi's often thought of as primarily just resisting the British uh, colonization. But he said, really, the center of my work is what he called the constructive program, which was developing new ways of doing things. And he wanted, he, you know, in his vision, was of a decentralized society closer to the earth, you know, which was, had a healthier, healthier communities, healthier villages, and so forth. So developing alternative institutions could be where one puts one's energy, could be alternative ways of uh, doing business or having a company or whatever, all sorts of things. And she said the third aspect is that of shifting consciousness. You know, it's of um, changing how we perceive the world. And this could occur, this occurs, I think, in meditation, but this could occur among people who are educators, or, or it could occur, the focus could be on raising one's children. You know, the focus could be on um, teaching body practices, teaching yoga, you know, 
And what, what I found most interesting about this is that the, uh, what's really important is that we follow where we're called, you know, and, but we see the connections, that if I'm interested in really developing really healthy family life, I can, that I can see the connections between all three of those ways of change. I can see the way that family life is put in jeopardy by many of the ways that society is structured and organized. You know, that often families and parents are not really highly valued in many ways. You know, and, and, you know, whether it's from the amount of maternity leave to any number of other issues. You know, which are very different than it is in other societies. I think in many European societies, there's one-year maternity leave. Right? What, what is there in this culture? Yeah. At, the most, uh, at the most three months, sometimes one month, I think, in some kinds of work. You know. So, um, again, it's not to, not to just be negative about the society. There are a lot of wonderful things about the society as well. It's a lot of beautiful aspects. But it's to really see, where am I called? Where, where is my vocation? Um, it's like this wonderful statement by Howard Thurman, uh, the great uh, African-American theologian and um, activist, who was asked when he was uh, near the end of his life, you know, um, by a young man, what should I do? And the young the man uh, thought he might get a response saying, okay, we need people for this action or this work or so forth. And Howard Thurman said, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Right? And so I think that, for me, helps a lot. Um, but still, there's this uh, way that I think many of us have this uh, maybe inner uh, unease about how can I, res- I know, you know, intuitively, I know there are a lot of these deep issues with society, what's my response? What, how do I respond? You know, and again, I'm, I'm suggesting that it doesn't have to be all in some conventional activist sense. It can be with how I live my life and how I understand things. But the connections are important. And there's this beautiful model that I think we find in most spiritual traditions, but we find it very, very clearly in the uh, Buddhist tradition of connecting our inner work with how we respond uh, in the world. You know, we find this in, I think, every tradition. I was thinking of um, visiting indigenous traditions in British Columbia, which has really been one of the places where I've most learned about indigenous traditions, along with um, helping to lead sweat lodges here, <laughs> you know, with, with Fred Wapapa. But, um, you know, being in the, in the cultures of the Northwest peoples there, uh, really got a sense of how the spirituality is always connected to community life and is always connected to the earth. It's very, very grounded. That inner, you know, the spirituality is always expressed in society. Or the, you know, I was thinking the, the Jewish prophets, you know, which lead to the life of Jesus and I think are really one of the models for a lot of the social action of the last few centuries. The Jewish prophets uh, have a rich inner life, but they also are committed to responding to injustice, to the plight of the poor or the oppressed. You know, and they, you know, they, they're, they're the words that we hear from the lips of Martin Luther King when he speaks. He said, let justice flow down like a mighty stream, right? Remember those, those words? Those are, from, those are from the prophets, Isaiah and so forth. You know, it's a wonderful tradition. Or we find the the Hindu traditions of um, uh, karma yoga, of having one's service and action in the world be one's spiritual path, of helping others. You know, we find and we find the life of Gandhi. We find all sorts of examples. We find liberation theology in Latin America and so forth. And the Buddhist tradition has this wonderful model of the bodhisattva. You know, a being dedicated to awakening, who also, uh, who also is one who helps others. You know, who is dedicated to um, helping others in material ways, helping others to awaken, and committed to awakening himself or herself. You know, there's a, it's a beautiful 
It's a beautiful image. Uh, sattva means being, bodhi is the, the root for awakening. And I think something like this image of connecting inner and outer uh, awakening is something which calls me very deeply and I think calls many of us. And we, yet we don't quite know how to do it fully, right? It's calling us. And I think what I'm hoping today is just to invite that, invite your awareness to see if there is that resonance. And then to have us each ask, well, how might that manifest in my life more? Not so much the full flowering, but what's the next, what's the next step? You know, what's the next step for that? And the bodhisattva, this uh, being dedicated to awakening, um, combines wisdom and compassion, is rooted in both of those, and makes the intention to help others. This is from the Vietnamese tradition, the vow that the bodhisattva makes. Countless sentient beings I vow to help to cross the ocean of existence. Eternal sufferings I vow to end. Innumerable spiritual methods I vow to study and comprehend. The Buddha's unsurpassable supreme dharma I vow to realize. In the uh, Theravada tradition from the 5th century, here this is a text, also a version of the vow. It's called the Great Aspiration. So we have this sense of the bodhisattva in many, many Buddhist traditions. Crossed I would cross... Freed, I would free others. Tamed, I would tame others. Calmed, I would calm others. Comforted, I would comfort others. Attained to nibbana or nirvana, I would lead others to nibbana. Purified, I would purify others. Enlightened, I would enlighten others. Oh, may I awaken to supreme perfect enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. from the author Shantideva from the 8th century. May I be a guard for those who, prote- who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. For those who wish to grow across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be an isle for those who yearn for landfall and a lamp for those who long for light. For those who need a resting place, a bed, for all the- who need a servant, may I be a slave. For every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. So some sense of awakening this wish really to help others and to have this be more and more the uh, center of our lives. You know, so this is, this is a tall order, right? <laughs> it's a high aspiration and I'm, I want to kind of bring it down to earth somewhat because I think it's really inviting us to be where we are but I think we all have this aspiration both for our own inner development and also for the helping of others using our own gifts and following our own vocations as best we can. So what I'm hoping to do is to energize that for you and also for me because I sit here giving this talk And I listen to what I say. (laughs) And I often say to myself, that sounds pretty good. You should listen to what that guy says. (laughs) Follow follow what he's suggesting. So so I'm I'm saying this with the hope of um, energizing and inspire all of us, including moi. (laughs) So so the, um, the bodhisattva goes through training, which is pretty close to many of the aspects that we look at here on Wednesdays. We train in mindfulness. We train in living more ethically. We train in developing the good heart. We train in wisdom. We train in patience. We train in learning how to be skillful in the world. You know, and we might think of the ways that we've have explored in the Wednesday morning gathering issues of how to be skillful in speech, how to be skillful with conflict, how to be skillful with uh, people we find difficult, how to, how to be uh, skillful with the challenges of our life. This is the training that we undergo here. And it's exactly the training that's important for being out there in the world. 
You know, and when, when you look to the list of what the Bodhisattva trains in, it's just what I mentioned. It's just what we're doing. So we are getting the training. And what we sometimes need is to be able to apply that training to our work lives, to our relationships, to our life in the larger world. Sometimes a little more extension of that is necessary. But the basic training that we're, we're going through is um, exactly the training of the Bodhisattva. And the Bodhisattva simply learns better to bring that training into the entirety of his or her life. That's really what the training, what the training is about. So I think I'll, I wanted to mention a few aspects of that training of the Bodhisattva and then do a guided practice and then open things up to our discussion just to see what, uh, what's, there, what's there for you. And I was, I was, um, was reading the other day some of the beautiful sayings of the great Tibetan, really one of the great founders of Tibetan Buddhism named Padmasambhava. Some of you know the great, one of the great uh, yogis of history who, um, uh, it's said, brought, uh, brought the Dharma to Tibet, got really, really friendly with the spirits of the land and converted them to be helpful. Other people had tried before and it had not succeeded. The spirits of the land had said, get out of here. And they had done fearful things. So Padmasambhava comes. But one of, the, one of the teachings which I really love is a very simple one. It's really about the connection with, about, between wisdom and compassion for the Bodhisattva. Because we all train in wisdom and compassion. Sometimes it's said that wisdom and compassion are the two wings of the Dharma. The Dharma is a bird that flies with two wings, wisdom and compassion. And there's this very interesting statement from Padmasambhava which says, we descend with our wisdom and we ascend with our action, with our compassion. It's a very powerful statement for me. I think what that means is that often the wisdom aspect of our practice seems to be somewhat of a high and even distant kind of teaching. There's a teaching about emptiness, about the lack of a substantial self, about the way that we aren't really who we think we are. It can sometimes lead to say, how do I apply that to be a bodhisattva? <laughs> right? it can, and so he says, we bring, we descend with the wisdom. We bring it into contact more and more with everyday experience. What does that mean in our everyday experience? There's these wisdom teachings about impermanence and the roots of suffering and, and the, the lack of a solid self. And he says, we ascend with the action rooted in compassion. So we really particularly stress metta and compassion and the opening of the heart. And that's really what we, that really is where we give a special emphasis. And we, we work with both of those somehow. And they're an interesting, interesting pair to really connect. And we've talked about that sometimes, how Sometimes the wisdom teachings seem to be about being able to see things almost impersonally, to see how this causes suffering, how causes and conditions lead to other factors. And we, we come to see that, and we come to see that more clearly. And, the, and it sometimes is very impersonal, and yet the teachings on metta or compassion are deeply personal. They're about responding to my suffering responding to the suffering of another, much as, as in our statements, you know, at the end of the meditation session. Very much as really a compassion and heart practice. And so there's this interesting balance that we balance the two, that we, that we connect the two, and they're unified when we respond to be with others. So another, maybe we can come back to that. I mean, one way of talking about that in, in a way that is maybe less um, complicated is to say that as the wisdom more and more informs the compassion, we can move towards increasingly selfless service. <coughs> increasingly selfish and wise service that has the aspects of wisdom, which are equanimity and patience, the long view, 
deep perspective about what causes things so we don't get so caught up in things and we're still completely there more and more to help others and to help ourselves. Another aspect of the, of the uh, path of the bodhisattva is that the bodhisattva really knows the nature of suffering. A lot of our training is we hang out with suffering until we know it backwards and forwards. Sorry, those of you who are just starting. <laughs> this is some of what we do. <laughs> this is some of what we do. We, we, are not, we learn not to be afraid to be with what's difficult, to be with what's painful, when the mind gets upset. And we learn about it well enough so that we are not so scared of it. We're willing to enter into it with ourselves or others. And we can be skillful. And we don't, uh, we don't cause so much suffering. You know, we remember that teaching of the two arrows that I offer about every other time I'm here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the teaching. <laughs> Will it come again? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, the, the, this teaching that, that says that um, it really is a differentiation between pain and suffering. It says we can be, can we be with the unpleasant and pain without reacting, without uh, reacting to someone else's, doing something which brings something unpleasant to us by blaming that person, by trying to hurt that person. Can we, can we not shoot the second arrow? Can we, uh, can we be with uh, our experience and learn to be with what's difficult or unpleasant without reacting, without blaming ourselves, without judging, without, in a way, passing on our own pain to others, which is huge in this world, to be able to do that and to understand deeply how people, when they are suffering, react and try to hurt others and try to hurt themselves. You know, it's that di- the dynamics of, uh, of uh, pain and suffering. We become experts on, so we really know that. And this gives us increasingly more and more freedom. The bodhisattva (coughs) has a taste, often a lot of taste, of the nature of freedom. We can think of freedom in many ways, but one way is not being caught in our own suffering. We're not being caught in reactivity when things happen. Having the same difficult mind state come up that has trapped us a hundred times in the past, and now we have enough mindfulness so we are aware of it and we say, I'm not going into self-judging right now. I'm not going into blaming my partner right now. I see it clearly enough. I'm not going there. That's freedom. That's a kind of freedom. That's a kind of freedom that is, um, has worked through suffering to a significant extent, worked through fear, and can respond And so what we try to do is we try to carry that knowledge of freedom and that understanding of suffering more and more into what we do. And really to see what, what there is that, we, that might call us. So there's a lot more that could be said here. I think I want to end with a guided meditation. So that will be um, more pers- bring this into a more personal context. Just letting the words uh, settle some, coming back to your breath. We'll do a visualization. And so this calls Fourth, really, the imagination, which I think is one of the great um, needs of our time. Sometimes when we get stuck or caught, we suffer from lack of imagination. And yet we have these capabilities. So maybe just to exercise that imaginative capacity 
like you to imagine yourself earlier this morning. If you had breakfast, imagine what you had for breakfast. This is just ordinary. This is not supposed to lead to profound insight. <laughs> okay, so, but if it does, that's great. <laughs> okay, so just imagine what you had for breakfast. Imagine yourself sitting. If you were sitting having breakfast, and if you didn't have breakfast, just imagine yourself going through some of what you did getting up, getting ready to come here. Imagine what you ate. And now come back to your your body and your breath. Imagine yourself now moving into the sky from us all sitting here, going up into the sky above the clouds into the high, higher reaches of the sky. I want to invite you as you fly, as you move through the sky, as you imagine yourself doing that, I want to invite you to move through time into the future. And go to a time four years from now. And in those four years, your practice has ripened further. For many of you, you've been more inspired by this image, this model of the bodhisattva. Or perhaps you've been motivated in your own language by this sense of connecting your inner practice with how you are with others and in the world. And you've taken it further over several years, maybe with some emphasis on making that connection. And it's four years from now, and you've given more attention to that inner-outer connection. And you look down now at yourself four years from now, maybe doing some of your typical work or activities of the day, And look down at yourself and notice how you are, maybe what you're doing, what are some of the qualities that you notice. What does it feel like from the inside?
Now you bring your awareness back to being in the sky. And you're preparing to come back to the present. But before you come back to the present, there's a wise being who comes up to you. And see who that is. It could be someone alive, someone not alive. could be a mythical figure like Kuan Yin or... some other spiritual figure. See who that person is or that being. And now that being comes up to you and whispers one sentence to you to give you guidance for your next steps. See what that see what that sentence is that this wise one offers. Now you come back through the sky to the present moment. And then you come down from the sky back to this room, back to this hall, back to your body, back to being present. And just sit, sit here with our, our community. In a moment, I'll ring the bell. And if, you, if it's helpful for you to take a moment to write something, feel free to do that. I'd like to invite uh, any reflections or comments on the talk or the experience. How many of you connected some or a lot with that exercise? Okay. How many of you got some helpful insight? I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Any questions, reflections anyone want to share? You can share also what you experienced, and I'll repeat it to the, I'll repeat things so everyone can hear. I'm pleased with me. Was a wave of bodhisattva. Is that more from a Tibetan lineage? Yeah. The, so the question is. And okay. The path to enlightenment is more. Is it more worldly through service? In yeah. Bodhisattva. Yeah. Whereas, I don't know. Could you speak to the different lineages? Yeah. So the question is about does the path of the bodhisattva come more from Tibetan tradition, uh, and is it about a path to awakening through service, right? Um, let's see. First of all, the, the um, notion of the bodhisattva is actually there from the beginning. The Buddha was called a bodhisattva in his uh, pre-Buddha days. <laughs> so to speak. <laughs> I think in probably days in both sense. <laughs> Uh, so if you look, if you look at the, 
if you, if you look at the text, he's called the Bodhisattva. It means someone who, uh, one sense of Bodhisattva means someone who is on the path to become a Buddha. That's one meaning of Bodhisattva. Uh, and it is found in, I read that quotation from Theravada, we don't teach it so much here, although some, sometimes we do. You know, sometimes we teach it. It's, it's, in the Theravada tradition, it's not as mainstream as it is in the Mahayana tradition, but it's there. You could go to Burma or Thailand and find people who teach that, and there are others who manifest it without always teaching it. There, there's a large, you know, right now in Thailand, there's a whole network of monks and nuns who are dedicated to uh, social action in various ways, ecological work and so forth. There's a, um, so the, the explicit focus on, on the bodhisattva in terms of the Buddhist practices that are in the United States, it's much more uh, explicit in Mahayana, which mean, would mean uh, particularly Zen, different kinds of Tibetan practice and so forth. So it is more explicit there. Um, but it is in the Theravada, as in the text that I read. And then in terms of what it means, I think it can mean actually a lot of things, which is part of uh, what I wanted to do today, was to give a sense that there's not a narrow meaning to the path of the Bodhisattva, and that it really can be, I interpret it as more as the connection of inner and outer work. The outer attention can occur in all sorts of ways. You know, you can be, uh, uh, in, and in fact, in those traditions, people considered themselves bodhisattvas and were primarily doing solitary practice at times, right? Because they'd be, or you think of something like the life of Thomas Merton, who was primarily a monastic in the last few years of his life, a hermit, but his writings were about the social and activists would come down and visit him and had profound influence on the social, even though he was primarily a hermit. <laughs> And the same thing in Thailand is true of someone like Achan Buddhadasa, who uh, was m- living at a monastery and very, very influential with a lot of the Thai, uh, particularly the student movements, you know, in the 70s and 80s. So, so I think I'm, I'm wanting to interpret the Bodhisattva very, very broadly. So it could mean really whatever whatever form it, that really makes sense for us, if we feel that calling to have a significant intention in our lives to be of benefit to others, it could take all sorts of shapes. It doesn't have to take the shape of this or that particular work. It could be, you know, uh, a stay-at-home mom, right? And, uh, or father, right? And, and someone could, you could see your life as a bodhisattva and what I, what I think is important is to see the connections between the different levels, between what we might call the collective level and then the more community and relational level, community, organization, family, friends, and so forth, and then uh, the inner dimension, to see the connections between all those, to see how we internalize the collective, you know, all the various ways we, co- we internalize what's out there in the society, you know, and most obvious in terms of gender, race, age, sexual orientation, and so forth. But also, you know, in terms of being consumers, all sorts of things um, that we internalize, and seeing part of our work, uh, even if we're uh, just staying at home with a family, we know that we've internalized that, and so we want to attend to it. Right? So, that's, you know, so it's getting to all the levels. It's not... That's, that's very important, but then wherever we focus. So that's, that's how I want to interpret And I think what's happening in our times is the Bodhisattva really captures the imagination, I think, of many of us. And I think we're actually reinterpreting it, often not completely aligned with what the scholars say, <laughs> if I can say it that way, meaning that we're interpreting in ways maybe that resonate with our lives and that stretch it, you know, which is always what's happened in social evolution, you know, that people uh, use their imaginations. And so that, that's, that's my sense of it. So it could take, hopefully, my hope is for this purpose of this talk that it could take the shape of everyone's life here and see what that means. Yeah. 
Thank you. Oh, please, Jen. That's completely in line with your whole talk. Um, It's called The Four Global Truths, and it's inspired by the Four Noble Truths. Oh, The Four Global Truths. Interesting. Um, And I recently got it from him, couldn't put it down, and was just incredibly inspired by it. And he uses Buddhist wisdom to help uh, kind of guide us in how to encounter the global crisis that we're facing. Yeah. The name of the author? Uh, Darren Deirdre, I think. Darren Deirdre. Darren Deirdre. So I'll repeat the uh, comment, really. (coughs) First was um, thanking me for my talk. (laughs) 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 For the sake of the historical record. (laughs) And then uh, recommending a book by uh, Darren Deirdre, Called, called The Four Global Truths, as very much uh, following the emphases of, of the talk. Yeah, thank you. Maybe we can have it in the bookstore. Yeah. Please. Okay. <coughs> so this was uh, an, another recommendation by uh, for an article by uh, someone named Christoph. Uh, article yesterday. Yesterday, which would have been May first, uh, two thousand twelve, <laughs> in the in the New, in the New York Times, uh, uh, in response to was it the Pope? The Pope criticizing basically activist nuns for um, spending too much time on issues of justice and human rights. <laughs> and not enough, not enough, as it were, if I could say, towing the line on uh, uh, homosexuality and abortion. Yeah, okay. Please. Yeah. Between um, passion and interest in social justice in yeah. ways in my life and my colleagues and friends. And burnout, yeah. um, overdoing it, the wisdom to reevaluate yeah. um, the balance between good effort and yeah. Um, yeah, so the question about uh, about connecting um, one's passion for justice or interest with the issues of burnout and uh, really ha- how, does, how can one's um, bodhisattva activity be sustainable? Maybe one way of saying it. Really great question, really important question. And um, it's actually, I think, one of the ways that we bringing this practice into this whole area can make tremendous contribution. One of the positive things I saw in the Occupy movement when I was there in the fall, there were always, in Oakland, 15, 20, 30 people meditating. There was like a place where people gathered, where they, and it was very active. I think that there are ways that we can know better how to work with burnout, how to avoid it. The, I mean, the causes of burnout are multiple. You know, and they're not, not just internal. A lot of the causes of burnout in organizations are, gonna, are about issues like amount of work, 
amount of work and whether people get appreciated and power structures and all, all those issues are, are significant factors in burnout. I actually, in, in my book that's on the back table, I have a, have a section on, on, on burnout. And, but I think our, the practices we do are very, very helpful. And also it should be said that there are cycles that we have, some of which are more inner and some of which are more outer, which I certainly know in my life. Really, really important point. You can see it in many people's lives. I know in my life, you know, I went through a period where I was going way, way deeper into meditation. And I had been an activist in college, and my activist friends thought I was kind of, what, um, giving up or, or betraying the cause or whatever. When I got really involved with meditation, there was a, quite a, a long cycle of going more inward. And then it came the cycle of going more outward. And then the cycles can last for... Uh, months or years, you know. Thich Nhat Hanh, who made that comment about the world, he went through a cycle fairly uh, late in his life in which he pulled back from activity and did five years primarily meditation and gardening to come back to balance, to find the sources of nourishment. So those cycles, and I think really, uh, you know, what I really like about the... um, this path and you know, comments like Howard Thurman's comments is that it's really about a deep listening <coughs> to oneself. It's not about following someone's idea of what one should do. It's really, really important. It's quite beautiful. So it's really a deep listening. And in meditation, we learn how to discern more and more what's the authentic voice and what are the voices that are more conditioned voices that are telling me what to do. And what's the, what's the deeper, authentic voice? Not always easy to find that. You know, we looked at that last time I was here quite, quite a bit. And so the authentic voice might say, I know it's really there are urgent problems. I know it's really important to do something, but I really feel this deep call to do some inner transformative work now. And that has to be honored. You know? and that's not at all in conflict with everything I said today. You know, to, to really honor that and to really, it's really to trust that voice, trust that voice that's uh, giving guidance. Because if we don't do that, what's going to guide us? And so that, I think, following that voice can be really, really helpful for dealing with issues of burnout as well. To really, so we don't, when the voice is saying pull back we, and we don't do that, that, that leads to burnout. Maybe a last one, and then I'll, then I'll have to... There are a lot more questions, but I want to just... Uh, and I'm, I'm probably, Marty, I'll have to be a little brief with this because of time. Yeah. Uh, letting go. Letting go of ego constraints and trusting the flow, which everything that's been said, that's what it means to me. Um, trusting the flow so that <coughs> if I need to spend time going more inward that I can trust that that's mm-hmm. but letting go of when I say ego constraints it's more um, looking at myself from the outside as I think I'm being mm-hmm. viewed by others or yeah. some image um, rather than really trusting yeah. that inner place yeah, so it's question or comment about uh, letting go in this practice and the, again, similar to what we were just exploring, this way of uh, being very discerning about the inner voices and knowing what's there and how uh, it may lead towards a kind of uh, sense of flowing with what's there and trusting one's voice if it calls one to pull back or not to be so active in a given time. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's, that's really, really important. I think, you know, it, this is where the inner and the outer get deeply connected. Our inner practice is so much about seeing all the different voices inside, all the different uh, um, senses of self that we have and where they've come from, you know, knowing some sense where they've come from and see more and more the authentic voice or the voice that's connected with our compassion, with our wisdom, with our mindfulness, and follow, following that more and more, really being able to follow that 
and have that be more and more there. And it does lead to uh, that kind of uh, fullness, which we could, in a sense, call selfless action or selfless service. And the, you know, it, it ties in with the Buddhist teachings on not-self, and which are, um, for many of us, not so easy to disentangle. But one way to make it very down-to-earth is to just think of those times. It's one of the ways I love to clarify the sense of selfless or beyond self is the times when we have felt most full in our actions or our activities or our being with another person. And that fullness is like uh, the music of a jazz musician. <laughs> it's just coming out and it's just, it's kind of, we're a vehicle and something's coming forth through us. I think we have all have those moments. And that's, I think, what we aspire to. That's a kind of a flow and it's a kind of a way that we um, are there in our fullness and without some of the constraints. But on the way to getting there, we work through quite a bit. <laughs> okay. Okay. So may this uh, talk, our discussion, our lives be of benefit to ourselves, be of benefit to each other, be of benefit to all those we come in contact with, and be of benefit ultimately to all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.